He was born privileged, lived all his life in England. He'd schooled at Eton and gone to Cambridge University. Yet Guy Burgess was part of a group that betrayed British secrets to communist Soviet Union, costing countless lives. When one of the group had his cover blown, he decided he'd only a short time to make his escape and live the rest of his life in Moscow. This is the story of his last day in London. Historical Crimes and Criminals podcast. I'm Steve, your host. If you want to be seeing the pictures from today's story, head over to Twitter and join the Historical Crimes and Criminals podcast. Traditionally, there were two real schools of British spy novels. The first, of course, was James Bond, whose adventures owed more than a nod to post-war austerity and the need for adventures and excitement. Bond gave us exotic destinations, beautiful women, an unknown foodstuff and martinis in a country where most men drank ale and ate pork pies. The other school occupies the world of Len Dayton and John le Carre. These are Cold War agents and the agents are the polar opposite of Bond, a bit seedy, underpaid and we find them in the press file and the spy who came in from the cold. Len Dayton revealed that he wanted Harry H. Corbett, who would go on to find fame in Steptoe and Son, as the protagonist for a film in The Upcrest File. The role, of course, would eventually go on to cement Michael Caine's career as an actor. Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy is Le Carre's most famous novel. It's also been an unmissable 1979 seven-part TV series starring Alex Guinness and a 2011 film with Gary Oldman. It follows the hunt for a Soviet double agent and the suspicions that abound within the service from the search. There was traditionally a mentality of superiority in the certain classes within British spy circles. It perhaps comes from a small island mentality that went on to rule large swathes of the globe. It led to a mindset that we see permeating in any number of boys' own adventures, especially Richard Hanny, the hero of the 39 Steps and six further novels by John Buchan. These are classed in the very British term of boys' own adventures. We can trace this Britishness back even further to novels such as Ryder Haggard's King Solomon's Mines. So, such was the mindset amongst the secret services. No one would believe that anybody would spy against Great Britain, especially their own. But when it did happen, it blew British establishment sky high. But, to start this story, we need to go back almost two decades to 1930s Cambridge. In the 1930s, 
the world was in the midst of a financial depression following the Wall Street collapse of 1929. Furthermore, there was a looming rise in fascism from Nazi Germany and it was spreading across Europe. In Britain, Oswald Mosley's black shirts would march the streets in rallies and have numerous violent street battles with anti-fascist protesters. And it was into this turbulent and political background that many students across Britain held political debates, a large number thereby joining the Communist Party, believing it to be the only reasonable political ideology. Whilst most fell away from these ideologies as other aspects of life became more important, a group were carefully singled out by the Soviet Union Intelligence Agency. The Soviet Union, realising that war was inevitable, and a number of these intelligent, well-bred men would no doubt end up in positions of importance in all agencies of the British war effort, persuaded them to withdraw any Communist Party membership, present a devoted dedication to the British cause, and essentially become sleeper agents for the Communist cause. Kim Philby was one of these agents, and he was recruited during a trip to Vienna in 1935, and was sent back to Britain with a list of names. In spy circles, they would eventually become known as the Cambridge Five. They also included Donald Maclean, Anthony Blunt, John Cairncross and Guy Burgess. In today's episode, we'll concentrate on Guy Burgess and touch briefly on Philby and Maclean. Guy Burgess had been born in Devon, in the southwest coast of England, in 1911. Burgess's father died in 1924, and his mother later remarried. Burgess went to Eton College, and subsequently won a scholarship to read modern history at Trinity College, Cambridge, in 1930. At university, he was described as immoral, witty, supremely dangerous and loud in his advocacy of communism. Another student described him as a conceited, unreliable shit. Burgess was openly homosexual and widely promiscuous, a trait he was to display all through his life. Author John Costello tells us, Burgess devoured sex as he did alcohol an overindulgence that suggests he was drowning a deep sense of sexual inadequacy. Robert Burley claimed that when he visited Burgesson University in 1931, quote, Guy wasn't in when I arrived, so I entered his room in New Court and waited. There were many books on his shelf, and I'm always drawn to other people's taste in reading. As I expected, his taste was wide and interesting. I noticed a number of Marxist textbooks, but that's not what shocked and depressed me. I realised that something must have gone terribly wrong when I came across an extraordinary array of explicit and extremely unpleasant pornographic literature. He bustled in finally, full of cheerful apologies for being late as usual, and we talked happily enough over the teacups. Kim Philby arranged for the Soviet handler to meet Guy Burgess. At first, Deutsch, the handler, rejected Burgess as a potential spy. 
He reported to headquarters that Burgess was very smart, but a bit superficial, and could let slip in some circumstances. Burgess began to suspect that his friend McLean was working for the Soviets. He told McLean, Do you think I believe, even for one jot, that you've stopped being a communist? You're simply up to something. When McLean told Deutsch about the conversation, he reluctantly signed him up. Burgess then went around telling anyone who would listen that he'd swapped Karl Marx for Mussolini and he was now a devotee of Italian fascism. Burgess, along with Philby, joined the Anglo-German Fellowship, a pro-fascist society formed in 1935 to foster closer understanding with Adolf Hitler. After graduating, Burgess had a wide variety of different jobs, eventually in 1936 being appointed to a post of the talks department of the BBC. This job brought him into contact with senior British politicians. In March 1938, he was a courier between Neville Chamberlain and Edward Daladier, and in September, he urged Winston Churchill to repeat his warning against Adolf Hitler to Joseph Stalin. Churchill developed a friendship with Burgess and he gave him a signed copy of Churchill's Arms in the Covenant. Burgess used his influence to arrange for his fellow spy, Anthony Blunt, to get a job at the BBC. In December 1938, Burgess joined the British Secret Service. He was appointed to Section D of MI6, dedicated to sabotage and subversion. Burgess had become a member of the establishment. During World War II, Burgess kept Moscow abreast of British decisions. With this, Moscow was able to penetrate British intelligence, with Burgess alone handing over 389 top-secret documents. The only positive was that Joseph Stalin suspected that as he was so prolific, it was perhaps some gamesmanship by the British. After the war, in December 1946, Burgess became private secretary to Hector McNeill, then the Minister of State at the Foreign Office. According to his biographer, Sheila Kerr, Burgess excitedly told his Soviet controller about his rapid and sensational advance to the centre of British foreign and defence policy making. Regarded as an expert on communism and with experience in propaganda, he was appointed to the Information Search Department, a secret unit created to combat Soviet propaganda. Subsequent repostings found him in Washington with Philby, who by this time was first secretary to the British Intelligence Service. This was essentially the chief British intelligence officer in the USA. In fact, all of the Cambridge Five were leaking information from all sorts of departments across the world to Moscow. In a plot directly inspiring Tinker Taylor, the US code-breaking team at Arlington Hall in Virginia eventually discovered that a Soviet spy with the codename of Homer was found in a number of messages from the KGB station at the Soviet Consulate General in New York to Moscow Center. The cryptoanalysts discovered the spy had been in Washington since 1944. 
The FBI concluded it could be one of 6,000 people. At first, they concentrated their efforts on non-diplomatic employees of the embassy. In April 1951, the decoders found a vital clue in one of the messages. Homer had regular contacts with his Soviet control in New York, using his pregnant wife as an excuse. This information enabled them to identify the spy as Donald McLean, who was at the Washington Embassy during the Second World War. Kim Philby was told of the breakthrough. He took the news calmly, as there was no real evidence, as yet, to connect him directly with McLean, and the two men had not met for several years. McLean was back in London by this time. MI5 decided not to arrest McLean straight away. The material was too secret to be used in a court, and so it was decided to keep McLean under surveillance in the hope of gathering further evidence, for example, catching him in direct contact with his Soviet controller. Philby relayed the news to Moscow and demanded that McLean be extracted from the UK before he was interrogated and compromised the entire British spy network. Philby then made the decision to use Guy Burgess to warn McLean that he must flee to Moscow. Burgess and Philby dined in a Chinese restaurant in downtown Washington, selected because it had individual booths with piped music to prevent any eavesdroppers. Burgess agreed to return to London in order to receive details with an escape plan. Before he left, Philby made Burgess promise that he would not flee with McLean to Moscow. Don't go with him when he goes. If you do, that'll be the end of me. Swear that you won't. Philby was aware that if Burgess went with McLean, he would be suspected as a member of the network. But Burgess and McLean had long been heavily reliant on alcohol and they were both cracking. Burgess returned to London, resumed an outwardly a normal appearance for a few weeks with some meetings with Donald McLean, who was unaware of Philby's plan. On Friday, 25th May 1951, Burgess woke about 9.30 in the morning. In his untidy, musty-smelling bedroom, next to his bed, was an overflowing ashtray and lying on the floor was a half-read Jane Austen novel. Burgess lived in a small three-bedroom flat in Mayfair, situated in Clifford Chambers, 10 New Bond Street. The Mayfair location is in a very salubrious part of London. Not long after he had woken, Burgess had been brought a cup of tea by his flatmate and sometimes lover, Jack Hewitt, who was a slightly overweight office clerk, but would once have been a ballet and chorus dancer in the West End. They were now very close friends who'd been sharing various flats in and around Mayfair for 14 years. Hewitt later wrote of that morning, Guy lay back, reading a book and smoking, and he seemed normal and unworried. When I left the flat to go to my office, Guy said, See you later, Mop. That was his pet name for me. We intended to have a drink later that evening. At the same time Burgess was waking up, Donald McLean had already caught his usual train from Seven Oaks some two hours previously and was sitting at his desk in Whitehall. 
He was head of the American department at the Foreign Office, but care was already been made sure that no operational significance was in the role. Maclean's father had been Sir Donald Maclean, who had first entered Parliament as the Liberal member for Bath in 1906. At around 10.30 that morning, a senior MI5 officer and the head of the Foreign Office Security were received by Mr Herbert Morrison, who had recently become Foreign Secretary in his large office in Whitehall. After reading a few papers, Morris signed one of them. This gave MI5 permission to question Donald Maclean about links to the Soviet Union. Both Maclean and Burgess knew something was wrong. A few days previously, they had met for lunch. Originally intending to eat at the Reform Club, they found the dining room full and walked to the nearby RAC Club along Pall Mall. Obstensively, they were meeting about a memo that Burgess had prepared about American policy in the Far East and the threat of McCarthyism. But on the way, McLean said, I'm in frightful trouble. I'm being followed by the dicks. He pointed out two men standing by the corner of the Carlton Club and said, those, those are the men that are following me. Burgess later described the two men. There they were, jingling their coins in a police-like manner and looking embarrassed at having to follow members of the upper class. At around the same time as the Herbert Morrison meeting in Whitehall, Burgess left his flat in New Bond Street. He had just received a telephone call from Western Union relaying a telegram from Philby in Washington about a car he had left behind in Washington. In reality, it was a coded message that McLean would be interrogated after the weekend. As he also intended to escape, he knew this would be his last day in London. Burgess hurried to the Green Park Hotel on Half Moon Street, about 10 minutes walk from his flat. At the hotel, he met a young American student called Bernard Miller, whom he had befriended on a journey back from the USA on the Queen Mary. Burgess later described him as an intelligent, progressive sort of chap. They had a coffee in the hotel lounge and went for a walk in Green Park. They had previously planned a short trip to France and Burgess had already booked two tickets for a boat that sailed that evening. They hadn't been walking long when Burgess suddenly stopped, turned to his surprised American friend who'd been talking animatedly about their trip and said, Sorry Bernard, I haven't really been listening. You see, I've got a young friend at the Foreign Office who's in serious trouble and I have to help him out of it, somehow. Burgess assured Miller that he would do everything he could to make their rendezvous, but he couldn't be definite until a few hours later. It was now just before midday and the American went back to his hotel and Burgess went to the Reform Club for a large whiskey and a think about what was lying ahead. Half an hour later, he asked the porter to call Wellbeck 3991 and ordered a hire car for 10 days. Whilst Burgess was slumped in a large corner armchair at his club, McLean left his office and walked up Whitehall, across Trafalgar Square, to meet a couple of friends for lunch at Wheeler's of Old Compton Street. The restaurant was very crowded on that particular Friday afternoon, 
and after sharing a dozen oysters and some chambly at the bar, McLean and his friends decided to eat their lunch elsewhere. By later accounts, McLean seemed unconcerned and almost nonchalant as he and his friends walked up Greek Street through Soho Square to Charlotte Street where they had two further courses at a German restaurant called Schmidt's. After a long lunch, McLean said goodbye to his friends and gratefully accepted an offer to stay with them while his wife was in hospital having their baby. She was only two weeks away from having their third child and he said he'd call them back the following week to arrange the details. While McLean was having lunch, Burgess called on Welbeck Motors in Crawford Street, half a mile or so north of Marble Arch, to pick up his hire car. It was an Austin A70 and was due to be returned on June the 4th, 10 days later. He paid £25 in cash in advance, £15 for the hire of the car and £10 deposit. Burgess drove the Austin down to Mayfair where he dropped into Jeeves the Taylors at number 27 Old Bond Street around 3pm. Jeeves would later merge with Hawks in 1974 when Jeeves Limited bought out Hawks, enable it also to acquire the valuable freehold of number one Savile Row. At Jeeves, Burgess bought a fibre suitcase and a white Macintosh, and then he went to meet Miller again. After a couple of drinks, he dropped the young American back at his hotel, telling him, I'll call for you at half past seven. Burgess didn't, and Miller never saw him again. After his long lunch, McLean took a taxi down to the Travellers Club, the West End club that had long been associated with the Foreign Office. He had two drinks at the bar and cashed a cheque for £5. There wasn't anybody at the club he knew and he returned to his office just after three. Burgess drove back to his flat where he met Hewitt, who'd been now returned from his office job. While they were talking, the phone rang, which Burgess quickly answered and made it clear that he was talking to McLean. A visibly upset Burgess left the flat almost immediately and he was never to see Hewitt again. He had time before leaving to grab £300 in cash and some savings certificates. He packed some clothes and his treasured copy of Jane Austen's collected novels in his new suitcase. He also asked to borrow Hewitt's overcoat. Burgess went to the Reform Club in Pall Mall, where he asked for a road map of the north of England, presumably to lay a false trail, and from then he drove to McLean's house in Tatsfield in Surrey. McLean had left the Foreign Office at exactly 4.45 and walked up Whitehall to Charing Cross Station, joined the hurrying commuter crowd. The two MI5 agents were of course still following him, but it was only as far as the station, where they made sure he got on his usual 5.19 train to Sevenoaks. The two friends arrived within half an hour of each other at McLean's house. Burgess was introduced to Melinda, McLean's wife, as Mr Roger Stiles, a business colleague. They all sat down for dinner at seven and Melinda cooked a ham. After the meal, McLean put some things in a briefcase, including a silk dressing gown, and casually told his wife that he and Stiles would have to go on a business trip, but would not be away for more than a day. 
Burgess had two round tickets booked in false names for the Fillets, a pleasure boat leaving that night for St Malo in France. Modine, their KGB handler, had insisted Burgess must accompany McLean. He later explained, the centre concluded that we had not one, but two burnt-out agents on our hands. Burgess had lost most of his former value to us. Even if he retained his job, he could never again feed intelligence to the KGB as he had done before. He was finished. McLean and Burgess took a train to Paris, then another train to Bern. They then picked up fake passports and false names from the Soviet embassy. They then took another train to Zurich, where they boarded a plane bound for Stockholm with a stopover in Prague. They left the airport and were now safely behind the Iron Curtain. They were taken by car to Moscow. Melinda McLean informed the Foreign Office on Monday the 28th of May 1951 that her husband had gone missing. It was soon discovered that Burgess had also gone missing. The Foreign Office sent urgent telegrams to embassies and MI6 stations throughout Europe with instructions that Burgess and McLean be apprehended at all costs and by all means. Needless to say, it led to an espionage field day for the newspapers. Philby was suspected, recalled by MI6 and interrogated as being the third man. But with no solid evidence, he was released with his reputation tarnished, if not destroyed. He was officially and publicly cleared by Foreign Secretary Harold Macmillan in 1955. In 1961, a KGB officer defected and offered details of Soviet agents within the British and American intelligence agencies. After a debriefing in the USA, the KGB officer was interviewed by MI6 and he confirmed Philby's involvement. In late 1962, MI6 visited Philby in Beirut where he was stationed. Philby admitted his involvement, but when asked to sign a written confession, he asked for a delay. A new meeting was scheduled, but Philby defected to Moscow in January 1963. He found Moscow disappointing, wrote an autobiography and listened to cricket on the BBC World Service until his death in 1988, aged 76. Burgess became isolated in Moscow, hated it and likened it to Glasgow on a Saturday night. In Russia, where homosexuality was not officially tolerated, he was given a boyfriend by the KGB called Tolia, whose main role was to report on him. Burgess turned more and more to drink. The journalist James Morris visited him in Moscow and felt sorry for the poor wretch. He described him as seeming like almost a parody of a broken man. And a broken man he was. He died in Moscow on the 30th of August 1963, aged 52. According to legend, when Burgess's brother Nigel flew out for the funeral, he bought his ticket to Moscow at Thomas Cook's and gave his name. The clerk paused for a moment before asking, will that be a single or return? Donald McLean died in Moscow, aged 69, in 1983. 
he had left Britain on his 38th birthday, with his wife pregnant with his third child. It is estimated that the Cambridge Five were responsible for numerous deaths of agents, failures of lots of missions, and a widespread distrust of British intelligence agencies for decades. Well, that's it for this episode of the Historical Crimes and Criminals podcast. I hope you enjoyed that. I've been Steve, your host. Till next time, bye-bye.